This is the SFF Audio Podcast. This is Scott. This is Jesse. Hey, Jesse. Hey, this hey, week. Scott. This week we've got uh, a great interview with uh, Robert J. Sawyer. Yeah, he's um, only could talk to us for a brief time. He has to jump on an airplane and head to L.A. to uh, work on the new script for Flash Forward, the episode. I guess he's he's doing an episode for them. Oh, that's fantastic! All right. Yeah. Well, here it is, Mr. Sawyer. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. You bet. You are uh, a famous science fiction author. <laughs> Currently, the uh, most well- brothers to say, but I am indeed a science fiction author. <laughs> you bet. Um, uh, most well known at the at the moment for Flash Forward. Um, yeah, based on my novel. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's available on audio uh, on um, Audible.com. That's right, although the recording was originally done by Blackstone Audio, so it's also available through commercial audiobook channels, uh, you know, uh, Barnes & Noble, Borders, wherever physical media audiobooks are sold as well. But yes, Audible has, uh, has the version available for download, too, and iTunes. Terrific, terrific. So, um, so how are you enjoying the whole Flash Forward experience? Oh, it's been a wonderful experience, one of the peak experiences of my life. Uh, the people involved with the show, everybody uh, from the top down, it's been wonderful to work with. David Goyer, Jessica Brzezinski, Brandon Braga, Mark Guggenheim, uh, the cast, everybody has been terrific. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to be part of the project. Oh, that's neat. That's neat. Um, are you um, involved at all with some of the changes that they've made? And um, I assume you don't have veto power, but have you been overall <laughs> pleased with it? Uh, No, I don't have veto power. Uh, um, You know, Disney has spent an absolute fortune making this TV series, and uh, it's their money that's on the line, not mine. And for that matter, it's the careers of these writers and actors in Hollywood who are on the line here, not mine. I'll be publishing novels next year. We don't know if they'll have a TV series next year, although we hope we will, of course. Uh, So, no, no veto power. But prior to even doing the paperwork for them to acquire the rights, uh, I did sit down with uh, Brandon Braga, Jessica Brzezinski, and um, and uh, David Goyer to discuss what changes they were contemplating making in my book if I was willing to grant them the rights. And we had a wonderfully creative back and forth about that where uh, I provided input, they provided input, and we came to an agreement about how it might best be adapted for television. Uh, and uh, I'm very pleased. I have no complaints. Oh, that's terrific. That's terrific. I, I have a question for you. Um, Go ahead, like- like uh, you know, Lost and I guess other other series like Battlestar Galactica. The the question is, do they really have a plan? And yeah. it, when 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 you got you know that proposal, here's here's the changes we'd like to make. And uh, you know, we we know that you have an ending for your novel. Um, is there an ending in mind, or at least a potential ending in mind for Flash Forward? Because Absolutely. it looks like. The- it. You raise the specter of Lost. Very interesting question. Uh, I happen to think that the the good folks at the Lost writing office, which is right next door to the Flash Forward writing office at uh, ABC Studios, uh, do have a good solid plan for where they're going. That said, there's no doubt that a good segment of the viewing public lost faith that they had a good solid plan. 
of where they were going, and that Lost uh, had a lot of attrition in its viewership because of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so ABC, you know, these are bright people at ABC Studios, ABC The Network. They said, look, okay, you're talking about a big mythology series. We're willing to put the money behind it to promote it uh, as our successor to Lost, but you got to tell us up front what you've got. You know, uh, we don't, uh, we're not going to take on faith that there's a whole series here. What have you got? How's it going to play out, not just in season one, but in season two, three, and subsequent? And Brandon Braga and David Goyer mapped it all out, and there is a plan. Uh, unlike Battlestar Galactica, whose opening credit slogan was, and they have a plan, uh, that's there right. actually is one. There actually is one. Uh, and um, it's going to make good, solid, uh, dramatic television, good, solid science fiction. Uh, and, yeah, uh, we, we've all sort of made a... A covenant, not just with uh, the audience, but with the people actually funding this, that uh, there's a payoff for everything and that it all makes sense in the end and that it will reward people actually sticking with the show. Well, it seems so far, I mean, it makes me think that they do have a plan, just given that, you know, we're getting all these visions of what what's going to happen six months down the road. That, that seems to make a lot of sense. And I, I remember reading your novel... Um, years ago saying you know this is this is really interesting idea based sf it was when i read the novel originally i thought this is i don't think anybody's done this this idea before and yeah that was the cool thing after all these years of so time strange. travel stories uh you know to have some you know hg wells invented the time travel science fiction story in 19 sorry 18 <laughs> 1895 uh, with the time machine and to think that uh a hundred years later, in 1995, which is when I got the idea for Flash Forward, that uh, I could come up with a new riff, uh, riff on time travel that people hadn't yet done, I was delighted. And um, it is, I think, of why of all my books, and I'm writing my 20th novel right now, why this particular one was the one that sold to, uh, to you know, big-time Hollywood uh, operation, uh, was because the idea was fresh, not to say that my other ideas aren't fresh, but to, it was a fresh take on a very favorite thing that's, that Hollywood has always had fun with, time travel. Um, who's got a new take on it? Oh, here's somebody over here. All right, that's, uh, we could do something fresh with this because it isn't something that everybody's already seen done before, and I think that's part of the success of the whole, the whole flash-forward uh, tentpole here on ABC. Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a very winning idea, and the, the changes that they've done with it uh, have been quite radical. It's not. It's not the novel at all. But well, I won't. I, I won't idea. let you say that. I won't let you say that. It is the novel. The novel deals with people having a flash forward, a yeah. worldwide global blackout. That's from my novel. It deals with people having a flash forward experience that is seeing their future. It deals with those futures overlapping and being consolidated in the public consciousness through something called the Mosaic Project website. That's from my novel. It deals yeah, with that, a married couple that, that has to face the reality that when they see their futures, they're no longer together. Novel. It deals with when a character like who commits suicide mm -hmm. to change the game and show, guess what, that future is not inevitable, as we saw in the most recent episode. Yeah. That's from my novel. It deals with a character who doesn't have a vision of the future and therefore has to re reconcile himself to the knowledge that he's going to be dead within the time frame of the, uh, the flash-forwards. That's from my novel. It deals, as we're starting to see here, with the characters of Simon coming out flat out and saying publicly, guess what, genius, genius quantum physicist here, that the, and Lloyd 
Simcoe, the main character from my novel, being seen as being Simon's partner, and therefore also a genius uh, physicist, that that's from my novel as well. So, no, right. I'm not going to let you it stand is, there and is, say this is, is nothing at all like my novel. The reason that the first credit on the ending credits, and there's no other uh, credit for the source material, is based on the novel by Robert J. Sawyer, is because it is. Now, to your point, they have made a number of changes, and that is absolutely fine. Uh, they're different media. Uh, the yeah. novel works really well with the idea of the flash-forward being 20 years to the future. Uh, it's harder to do that in television. What are you going to do? You can take a beautiful woman like Christine Woods or Sonia Walter and uh, hag them up a bit? Uh, no, I don't think so. What are you going to do? You're going to hire Joe Fiennes, uh, one of the best, uh, and for that matter, uh, Zachary Knight, and a couple of best-looking guys on TV and start wrinkling them up and giving them uh, uh, bald heads and all of that, that's not why people turn into television. They turn into television uh, to watch beautiful people. They want to know that even the cougars are Courtney Cox out there and not, uh, you know, uh, Joan Rivers. Uh, and so, no, obviously it was a non-starter to have a cast that was going to be decades older for half the show or for significant portions of the show. Uh, also, uh, the notion that uh, my novel was set primarily in Europe uh, and they wanted to set it in Los Angeles. Well, the fact of the matter is the global blackout is just that, the global blackout. It takes place on the entire surface of the globe and affects every single one of the almost seven, human, seven billion human beings that are alive today and, what, and leaves seven billion minus 20 million of them alive after the event. Uh, and so you could just as easily start telling the story in Los Angeles as you could in Geneva, as I did, or Nairobi, or Beijing, or uh, Capus Casing, Ontario. Wherever you wanted to tell it, you could tell it, because it is, and this also is unique in the history of storytelling, I think, a worldwide phenomenon that to the second affects every human being on the planet. World War II didn't do that. No plague has ever done that. No sociological, religious, political change has ever done that. So that, too, is part of what the appeal of the show is. Nobody has ever done a story about something. Even, as my great friend Larry Niven wrote a great story about the sun-going Nova, even the sun-going Nova, guess what? you got to wait 12 hours if it's <laughs> night on your time on the uh, part of the planet before you rotate inexorably into the, the sunlight and get burned away. Uh, so that's part of the appeal of this as well. That that was a great story. Uh, uh, it was the Inconstant Moon. Inconstant Moon won the Hugo Award. Larry Niven, yeah, absolutely yeah, wonderful story. story. One of Larry's very best. Yeah, one of the things that I admire most about your books is um, how you're able to explore the philosophical ideas. Um, it was a very eye-opening experience for me to read Calculating God, um, which has a excellent audio version um, read by Jonathan Davis. Um, but in which you were you were able to play with the ideas of uh, God's existence or non-existence in in a story format, um, and and that seems to be kind of your trademark. You know, I, I can't really think of someone else that you know I can point to and say, hey, that this person writes like Robert J. Sawyer. But well, how, how does it how does it um, how does it occur to you in your mind? I mean, are you, are you throwing these ideas around and then you kind of build a story around it, or do somehow these characters? Um, sure. End up in sure. a philosophical uh, spot for you. 
Let me take a step back because you mentioned Jonathan Davis and uh, the Calculating God audiobook from Audible Frontiers. I just want to mention, because Jonathan did do such a wonderful job as did the production staff, that we won the Audi Award from the Audible Publishers Association of America, the, the uh, Professional Association of Audiobook and Talking Book Publishers. Uh, Jonathan's reading of my novel uh, won the Audi for Best Science Fiction and Fantasy Book of the Year this year. Just yeah, back in June, we went for He's one of the very finest narrators out there. Isn't he? I yes. mean, just wonderful. Mm. I mean, I, I was blown away by what he did with it. Now, to your question. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it is the philosophical conundrum that comes first. Uh, both with Calculating God and Flash Forward, I had this big idea. Uh, in Flash Forward, it's obviously, what if you had a glimpse of the future? Would your life be better? And in, and, and in uh, Calculating God, so many of my colleagues had written the story where the, uh, the bright super-intelligent aliens had come and met the benighted, foolish humans and had finally disabused us of our silly religious beliefs. And I thought, what if it was the flip side? What if it was the atheistic humans who have the bright, obviously super-intelligent, by virtue of having traveled between stars and coming here, aliens, uh, and it's the aliens who show up and say, you know, uh, we, 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 of course we believe in God. We can prove God's existence scientifically and philosophically and logically. And what you guys don't? Well, let us let us uh, give you a little uh, lesson. And I wanted to do that reversal and and debate the issue. It's so easy for atheists, and I count myself as one, to smugly look down on those who claim to be believers. And uh, you know, because a lot of obviously a lot of believers have not logically thought through their position. And but a lot of atheists throw up little simplistic star, straw men arguments and uh, kind of knock it down. Well, how can you believe in the flood? Well, in fact, the majority of, uh, of uh, people today don't believe in the flood, even if they are religious, for instance. Uh, and we kind of argue as if every religious person on the planet is a raving, narrow-minded fundamentalist, mm -hmm. which, in fact, most of them are not. Most of them are bright, intelligent people. And what I wanted to do was the science fiction novel that didn't do the silly straw men arguments about religion but did some really interesting ones where the guy who held the religious position was at least as bright and interesting as the guy who held the atheistic position. That's what Calculating God came out of. Mm -hmm. I, I really, one of the things I, I've noticed about your novels that I really liked is in Flash Forward and in uh, Calculating God, you're, you, you seem to engage with the idea of scientific institutions like the Royal Ontario Museum yeah. and CERN. This is something, I guess, because a lot of your novels are set in the near future or the, or the present day, um, that other science fiction authors aren't really doing very often. But even, I think, uh, in, the, in Hominids and that, that Neanderthal parallax, there's, yeah. there's uh, the sort of an engagement. Right, you're you're engaging with actual science that's going on right now, and saying, "Look, is, isn't this interesting?" And then setting a story there. Yeah, how, and it's how a does deliberate that come about choice on my part. Yeah, very very interesting point. Thanks, Jesse. Um, here's how it came about. I got tired as a science fiction reader of of two phenomena that I saw repeatedly in science fiction books. One is what I call the one source science fiction novel. You'll see it. I'm not going to name names here, but you can pick up a number of science fiction books where the acknowledgments will be, and I would like to thank uh, Astronomy Magazine for this one article that gave me the cool idea, or PBS's uh, Nova for the episode they did on this, because that was my research. I watched that. And I thought, 
who are these science fiction writers that have that are not immersing themselves not in pop science but in real cutting-edge science and they're out there they're selling books and I thought no 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 if you're gonna be a science fiction writer you have to be knee-deep in what's happening in real cutting-edge science uh, just as if you're going to write medical thrillers today, you can't say, well, you know, I saw Marcus Welby once where they cured the Trump's <laughs> cold with sassafras tea. you got to say, I know everything there is to know about genetics and communicable diseases and disease control and vaccination, blah, blah, blah. If you're not up to speed, you're not writing House and you're not writing Bones and you're not writing uh, CSI um, and you're not writing uh, Robin Cook novels or the late Michael Crichton's novels. Uh, but there are a number of science fiction writers saying, yeah, you know, I, I don't actually do that science thing anymore. Um, I had a very good time this summer at the Launchpad Astronomy Workshop, which NASA runs for science fiction writers. I had a very good time despite the fact that uh, myself and Ed Lerner and Joe Haldeman, some of us who were there, knew every single thing that they were teaching us. But others who were there, I frankly was astonished at uh, science fiction writers whose science knowledge wasn't you know, really cutting edge and up to speed. And I thought, okay, there's a niche here. It turns out that science fiction isn't uh, necessarily fiction written by the super scientifically literate. Well, I like to think that I am, and that's a strength I can bring to it. The other part it, of it... It was, does show up. Uh, thank you. The other part of it was that for, even amongst those science fiction writers who are very scientifically literate, I count my friend Carl Schrader uh, here in Toronto as what I count uh, Charlie Strauss, uh, the Scottish writer living in the UK as another. Uh, they have taken to writing post-singulatarian science fiction. That is, after the, the advent of super science and magical nanotechnology, and basically you can wave your hands, and as long as you use a little bit of technobabble, you can say, oh yeah, well, it's, you know, after the singularity. We can do that. We can transmute matter. Oh yeah, it's, you know, it's post-nanotech becoming mainstream. We can make anything we want. And that actually uh, bothered me a bit, too, because Clark's Law, which was supposed to be an awe-inspiring notion, any sufficiently advanced technology, is indistinguishable from magic, has in the hands, and I don't necessarily mean Carl or, or Charlie here, has had in the hands of some writers the effect of being a get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't have to know any science. I don't have to know anything. I can make it up and then pretend that it's science, science fiction, by invoking technology or singular, uh, singularity. And I didn't want to do that either. There's real, fascinating, edge-of-your-seat, exciting science going on at CERN, at the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, at NASA Ames, at uh, Triumph, at all these facilities that I've used in my novels, and real cutting-edge amazing projects like the Human Genome Project and now the Neanderthal Genome Project, and uh, the research of cutting-edge uh, physicists uh, all over the world that uh, make for great great, great, gripping, intellectually exciting, mind-expanding stories. And it does ac actually astonish me that a great number of uh, people writing science fiction aren't tapping into this extremely rich vein of story material. Well, it's more more space for you to play in, I guess. Um, oh, that's every true. Time, every, t every time I, I see a new book come out, I say, oh, he's he's tapped into a new, a new vein of, of something that I haven't seen somebody else writing about. Well, um, thank you. Thank you. You know, it's funny because there is uh, a whole subset of science fiction, which is uh, the space opera slash military SF subset, where I, you know, even when it's really well done and there are writers who do it really well, I lost all interest in it. 
um, a decade or more ago because it didn't seem that anybody was bringing anything new or fresh to that. And I got to say, as much as I've got great friends, S.M. Sterling and Harry Turtledove, who write alternate history, uh, I've pretty much lost my interest in that field, too. All the ones that seemed interesting and exciting people had already written about and it's getting you know it just okay yeah we see how that 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 premise works thanks guys okay um but there are all kinds of things in cutting-edge science right now i'm writing an enormous amount about the science the actual empirical science of consciousness uh that is mind-blowing literally mind-blowing and um that's i find much more interesting than going back and doing these classic science fictional tropes of the spaceship, or the alien, or the time travel, or the war, or the alternate history hinge point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you said uh, you're on your 20th novel, is that right? I'm writing the third book in the WWW trilogy, Wake, Watch, and Wonder. Wake is out, that was number 18. Watch is done, it comes out in April 2010. And Wonder, I just passed the halfway mark in. So, it looks like uh, 10, or half of your, uh, not oh, almost half of your novels are available as audiobooks on Audible. Um, oh, and more to come. Watch and Wonder are coming in Audible right. format. Starplex is coming in the spring in Audible it's format. It's already out. Starplex is out. Yeah, just out. Yeah, really? came out. Yep. Oh, wow. And 2009. I ha- I, I, I've got to go buy a copy. <laughs> <laughs> i got to use one of my credits this month. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's out. That, that's well, those the one guys that- are fast. That's the one that started off as a, a Star Trek novel originally, right? Uh, it started off, uh, yeah, way, way back with me playing around with that sort of idea. That's absolutely right, yes. And um, I, I liked how uh, none of your, your aliens were like um, Star Trek-style aliens with, you know, just a guy with stuff on his face. They were, you know, this is, this is an alien, and it, it's not really much like what you would think an alien would look like, given this... Star Trek. Exactly. I, I mean, when I started out, you know, uh, what I started out doing, and this is like 25 years ago, I looked at all these aliens in Star Trek, and at that time I was reading a lot of Larry Niven. Uh, and Larry had such great aliens. He had the Kazinti, yeah. and he had uh, the Cadet Lino, and he had the Puppeteers. And yeah, these were great. These were great. What do you know? There's Starplex and Audible. I just looked. <laughs> I had no yep, idea it was already there. out. Uh, narrated by Mark Boyd. This is way cool. I'm delighted. I had no idea. No yeah, idea. One, one other subject I wanted to get into before uh, you go is uh, Jesse talks often about a book of yours called The Golden, I don't think it's The Golden Fleece, or Golden Fleece, Absolutely. Um, which was a science fiction mystery. And we've both heard you uh, speak about how you feel that the mystery genre is closer to the science fiction genre than fantasy is. Um, how, how do you think fantasy and science fiction got lumped together? Uh, as pure historical accident, uh, the first American edition of Lord of the Rings was done by Donald A. Walheim. Donald A. Walheim was a scientist. Nobody knew where to put this thing that nobody had ever seen before, the epic fantasy novel. Where did it go on the bookshelves? Well, Don Wolheim had published it, and therefore, uh, you know, let's do it with Don Wolheim, uh, where his books go in science fiction. And that's all there is to it. Okay. So, so are you saying you, you would never write a fantasy novel? Uh, there'd be no point in me doing that. I have an established audience who reads my science fiction, uh, and not all of that audience would transfer over to me writing a fantasy That's novel. True. I won't write a romance novel, and I won't write a mystery novel, and I won't write a medical thriller, and I won't write a mainstream novel. I've got an audience who comes to me in the science fiction section looking for science fiction, and I'm not a prolific enough writer uh, you know, 
to do that, uh, to serve multiple audiences. So that's the one I'm serving. Any chance that Golden Fleece is going to be an audiobook? Oh, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. They've been buying up my backlist at a good crisp rate, uh, and uh, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. Great, great. I, I, I like that. That's the, you know, you sort of seem, I, I, I seem to sort of see patterns in your career of at least what your novels are. So the first uh, few are, I see dinosaurs, dinosaurs and AI. And I guess yeah. AI is something that recurs again and again. Absolutely. Um, and then I, later on we see genetics. Mm -hmm. And uh, now we've got um, uh, time travel and the internet. I love that, all those topics. Yeah. <laughs> so th they make they make good novels. What what you 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 were at the astronomy uh, conference uh, put out by NASA. Yeah. What, what what what's what's the future hold? What For other things fiction? are you interested in in science? Yeah. I am always 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 interested in the weird uh, applications of uh, physics and the weird things we're learning about quantum physics. I've not yet done with all the things I want to say about what our uh, ever-growing understanding of the quantum nature of reality uh, has to say. I'm not going to say any more than that right now, but the next mm -hmm. book I'm going to do is going to have very much uh, a physics bent to it, I think, and I'm looking forward to doing that, absolutely. Yeah, you did some quantum computing in, in the Neanderthals Oh, uh, yeah, series. yeah, the, uh, but there's more to quantum physics than quantum computing. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Terrific. Very cool. Did you get a chance to hear that uh, CBC version of Rollback? Yeah, with Alessandro Giuliani did the narration. Mm -hmm. He did an amazing job. Oh my he God! Did, didn't he? Good. I thought he. I thought he did. He pronounced you know, Evo he, Terra he and uh, and uh, Michael Menengay wrong. Or, uh, um, but I I, I bet what, that's the What did you say about Michael? Oh, I, I, uh, I think he mispronounced the the their names. Um, just oh, did he? Oh. You know, <laughs> Uh, oh, what are you going to do? That's probably, you know, what else is he going to do, you know? They're yeah. not in the dictionary, so. That's right, that's right. I think that, but, uh, that no, was uh, Alessandro did a fabulous job. I was really, really impressed. Yeah, it was really good. Great. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Sawyer. That was a oh, an great pleasure, pleasure of ours to have you. Pleasure. I enjoyed it myself. Thank you so much. All right. Take care now. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.